But there's a new Prime Minister in England, uh, Boris Johnson. Here he is with his first gathering of his, um, his cabinet. I have to be honest, he, he doesn't really look to me like a world leader. Um, he's just a little bit dishevelled. Apparently, it's a bit of a thing that he owns, that, that that's part of his style. So um, he's a couple of times been seen by a particular journalist rocking up to some event he's been asked to speak at. He turns up just in time or late. Um, he basically walks in, looks around at the sign as if to suggest that he didn't really know where he was heading and what he was attending, launches into a speech which begins with an anecdote that has nothing to do with the organisation that he's there for, but somehow in all of that he manages to win over the people. And so he's this leader that in many ways doesn't look like a leader, doesn't behave like a leader, and yet he's the people the leaders want. He's the leader the people want. And in that sense he's not in bad company. Um. (laughs) Um, Well, as we continue in 1 Samuel today, Israel want a leader. The people want a leader and they ask for a king and we quickly find out they want the king for security. Uh, The story is that Samuel's been their judge up until now and he's been their security, but Samuel's getting old. And Samuel's kids... I mean, despite seeing the failure of Eli's sons back when he was young, Samuel, for some reason, appoints his kids as judges. And it's not working out. And so Israel speak to Samuel. They say, look, we want a king. So um, chapter 8, I'm going to start at verse 3. Samuel's sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Can you feel the deja vu? So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel's personally offended. But God points out there is a much bigger problem with their request. Because Israel already had a king. God was their king. He was the real leader of Israel. Verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Uh, You see it down in verse 19. They're wanting this king to fight their battles, but only last week we saw the Philistines defeated by God, all on his own. When the Philistines came to attack Israel, God struck them down without Israel lifting a finger. And yet... What do they say in verse 19? The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Uh, They want a king because they reckon this king is going to make him secure. And so back in verse 8, God does make a, a quite surprising connection. He says they're wanting a king. It's It's just like idolatry. It's like wanting a a, a different God. Verse 8, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. It's this great reminder that idolatry is much more than idols. 
Just because there's no statue in your lounge room doesn't mean that you're idol-free. Idols are what you rely on for security. Uh, They're the things you look to, often good things, God-given things, but we trust them to meet our needs. So um, there's a a well-known book about this. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York and his book is called Counterfeit Gods. Here's what Tim writes. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And in that sense, our society has so many idols, doesn't it? So many things that we look to to give us the security that only God can give. Um, Homes and money. Families and relationships. They're all good things. They're God-given things. But we trust them to make us secure when only God can. Israel's request for a king, it is not innocent. They, they expect the king to provide the security that only God can give. So, what does God do? Well, he does what God often does. He warns them, and then he gives them what they want. Now, it's, a, it's a pattern you see unpacked in Romans 1, that God gives us over to the desires that we have that are not the desires he has for us. It's like my um, kids. Uh, I I personally, I love sweet chilli sauce. Um, I love to have it on stir fries and things like that. I like it with a bit of a a good bite. And every child, when they've been about toddler age, they'll see me pouring the sweet chilli on my my stir fry and they've got to have some. And I, I, I try and warn them, no, look, look, it is hot. It is going to burn your mouth. You don't want this. No, 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 they've really got to have it. Now, here's just, you can have the tomato sauce. Use the tomato. No, they want to try daddy's sauce. And so it's not child abuse. You just give them a little bit of sauce and it gets on their rice and you watch their face. <laughs> well, God does the same thing for Israel. First of all, Samuel warns Israel, verses 11 to 18, And the key word in the warning is take. Verse 11, the king will take their sons. Verse 13, he'll take their daughters. It goes on, their servants, their fields, their grain and animals. A king like a nation, the king that they want, will take from the people. Because the very power that they're trusting in to rescue them will turn against them. It will be used over them. And yet, as we saw in verse 18, they insist. And so verse 22, God gives Israel what they want. Have a listen. The Lord answers Samuel, listen to them and give them a king. And that takes us into chapter 9 and 10, which are actually quite strange chapters on the whole. Um, We see Saul anointed not once, but twice. First privately and then publicly. And each time, as we watch the story unfold, the question that's in our mind is, the king Israel asked for, is he really the king they need? Because he's just, there's something missing in the formula here. Uh, First time around, Saul stumbles into the kingship. So he actually goes out looking for lost donkeys. He doesn't seem to have any idea how to find them. 
Um, and worse, he doesn't know about Samuel. It's his servant that tells him that there's a prophet nearby. Why don't we go and ask him? Have a look from verse uh, 5 of chapter 9. Verse 5, chapter 9. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back. Or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul's got no idea of what he's doing with finding these donkeys, let alone running a kingdom. But it turns out that God's in charge and he's he's prepared Samuel for, for Saul to arrive. And so Samuel goes ahead and anoints Saul king. But even at the end of this story, we're not sure if Samuel's really bought into the game. So chapter 10, verse 14 He doesn't even tell his uncle what's happened. Have a look at verse 14. Now Saul's uncle asked Saul and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Oh, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, Oh, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. If Saul doesn't know who Samuel is until his servant tells him and and if he hides the fact that he's been anointed from even his uncle what sort of king is he going to be the problem is even worse at the end of the chapter um, Saul's anointed publicly there's this whole process of seeking him out from the people but when they come to call his name he can't be found it turns out because he's hiding. So you've got this situation where a guy who looks the leader, he is head and shoulders above everyone else. But you've really got to ask if he's up to the task. Have a look at verse 22. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. And they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And some of the people buy in and some of the people are holding their judgment. God gives Israel the king they asked for. He gives them a king like all the nations. Physically, he's got the goods. He's perfectly physically capable of leading them out into battle. But is he the king that they really need? It's uh, the difference between what you ask for and what you need. It's the difference between going to Bunnings and going to Mitre 10. I don't know if they're still around. So you go to Bunnings, you say, look, I need a bracket. And the shop assistant shows you the brackets and you have to find your bracket. Uh, Unless, of course, they haven't got the bracket you're looking for, at which point they suggest some solution which involves nails and some glue, and you go home and you try it out, and usually, in my experience, it just doesn't work out because they didn't actually know what they're talking about. But you go to Mitre 10, at least back in the day, and you said, I need a bracket, and they say, well, what are you building? And they find out about your project, and they tell you, actually, no, you don't need the bracket. What you need is this device over here because what you asked for wasn't what you needed. Israel have asked for a king like all the nations, but the king they need is a bit different. And that's what we find in chapters 11 and 12. This is the king that Israel needs. First of all, they need a king who is led by God's spirit. 
You actually get a hint of this back in chapter 10. Um, one of the signs that Saul's been chosen king is that the Spirit comes upon him and he ends up dancing around with a bunch of prophets. It's a bit of a weird moment, but it says that the Spirit is important. Now, uh, in chapter 11, there's this city, Jabesh-Gilead, it's being attacked. And when Saul hears the news, God's Spirit takes control. He gathers the people because the Spirit has come upon you and he leads Israel into battle. Chapter 11, verse 6. When Saul heard these words, the news about Jabesh Gilead, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Interesting, he includes Samuel there. And then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. To to win the battles, they need a king who is spirit-empowered. He is going to lead them into battle if God is at work in him. But the other thing we then go on to find out is that he needs to be a king who follows the Lord. Uh, Verse 14 um, Samuel tells the people they've got to go to Gilgal and renew the kingship. It's, it's sort of a weird phrase, isn't it? Renew the kingship. ESV has renewed the kingdom. It's saying that even though they've now got a king, they, they were a bunch of tribes scattered about with no central leader, now they've got a king. They, even though this, politically things have changed, the kingdom hasn't. The kingdom is being renewed. It's not being started. Because God is still king. And so what does this renewal ceremony look like? Well, in verses 1 to 11, they're reminded that God was king all along. When they were rescued from Egypt, when they were brought into the land, when they drove out nations, when the Philistines just recently came to attack, God was their king. And so in verse 13, they still need to follow God. In fact, now the king must follow God as well. Have a listen when I read from verse 13. Now here is the king you have chosen, which is interesting given what we read in chapters 9 to 10. God's, God chose Saul in one sense, but, but no, it's the one that you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him... And do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. The, The kingdom hasn't changed. They've instituted a king, but the king is much more like our governor general than he is like our queen. That the Queen has the ultimate authority. The Governor General is the local representative. He, he can make, do, do things and lead the people, but really only as much as the Queen allows him to. And of course, then there's Parliament, which, you know, in our system totally messes it up. But um, <laughs> that's the picture of kingship in Israel. God remains king, the kingdom hasn't really changed. Any human king needs to follow the Lord before he ever follows, leads the people. And so, the question is, will Saul meet the grade? Is Saul up for this task? And 
I'm not going to give you the answer. I don't want to ruin the story for you. That's Simon's job next week. (laughs) But what I can do is point you to the king that you need who may not be the king that you ask for. See, see, 1 Samuel sets up this criteria sheet for the king of Israel. He needs to be spirit-empowered and he needs to follow the Lord. And then you go on and you meet Saul and then David and then David's sons. And, and that story is a bit tragic because increasingly they don't follow the Lord. And, and while David has always got the spirit, more and more you just wonder where the spirits have worked. Eventually, Israel go into exile, and when they get back, there's Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel leads the people, and we even are told, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord to Zerubbabel. And yet somehow that doesn't work out. And so we're sitting, waiting for the king who's going to lead the people, because he's going to be spirit-empowered. And then one day, many centuries later, um, John is by a river, and he's baptising people. And along comes Jesus and he goes into the water and the dove descends and the spirit comes on Jesus. And suddenly you have the king who is spirit empowered. He's exactly the king that the people were looking for. In fact, he goes on to do miracles and the purpose of the miracles as he drives out demons, it is demonstrating that the kingdom has come just like expected in 1 Samuel. So um, Matthew twelve twenty eight, Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because finally the king that Samuel was looking for, it's, he's turned up. This is the Spirit-empowered king. And he follows the Lord. He does, comes and he doesn't fight his own battles. When he gets arrested, he's perfectly capable of calling down any number of angels and fighting for himself. But instead, he fights the battle we need. He fights the battle with sin and with death. He fights a battle on the cross, submitting to his Father, trusting him. And hanging on that cross, that is not the sort of leader that you or I would pick. He's not a leader like the nations. The people make fun of him. They walk past, if you are the Christ, as if you are the king of Israel. But he was exactly the king they needed. Think about it. Samuel warned the people that a king like the nations was going to take and take and take. But the king that we need gave and gave. And gave. He gave his life so that we would live. And so the, the wonderful news is that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. He's instituting and he's bringing about the kingdom we all long for, the kingdom that we actually need. Uh, but I just want to run two more implications as you go into the New Testament, the lessons from Samuel that actually play out in how we live the Christian life. The first one is the importance of the Spirit. Uh, you know, Jesus rises from the dead and then he pours out his spirit on his people, uh, which is really significant. The spirit was what empowered Jesus to defeat and battle sin and now the spirit is at work in us defeating sin. And not just at work in us, helping us to, to obey Jesus, but the spirit equips us 
to do Jesus' work. When, when the Bible talks about us being the body of Christ, it really is quite serious about that. Uh, Christ's work is carried out by his people. And he equips each of us differently to do that. Romans 8, sorry, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, these, those passages all about the gifts of the Spirit, they're given for the building up of God's people, for, for, for defeating sin and drawing together his people. That's the Spirit's work in us. And so when we come to church, we don't so much come to rest, but to, to be God's agents, to be Jesus' people, his hands and feet, serving each other, building each other up. So, so how God is God equipping you? How, how are you serving Christ this week? Uh, on Sunday, during the week? Is it um, you're going to encourage someone over morning tea, um, equipped by the Spirit to speak a word of the gospel, word of encouragement? Maybe it's an opportunity you'll have to be generous and meet someone else's need. Maybe it's the way that he equips you to serve in our kids' ministry, our youth ministry. Um, maybe it is that the... the the, um, the, the prayer that you do during the week, that he's given you the pr- gift of faith and prayer, which means that you can pray for others, you can pray for the work of the gospel going forward. God equips us with his spirit to do his work under Jesus. And as we do that, the other thing to remember is that we are not like the nations. We, we don't find our security where other people will find our security. So we, we don't trust the idols of our age. We don't trust the stock market, the housing market. We don't look for my reputation at work to make me feel secure. Uh, it's not about my family or friends. Those are the things, the idols that can absorb my heart so easily. But I need to keep looking to God. I need to keep being led by Jesus to him. And so I just wanted to finish with that passage from 1 Peter because it just reminds us, where is my security? What is it that I have if I have Jesus? Well, I have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. It is secure in heaven. I mean, that is great. And notice we're secure too because God's power shields us. He protects us in this life. When that salvation comes in the future, you will stand in God's presence because God will have kept you safe. That is great. That is the kingdom at work. And the other thing to say is, um, there will be trials. There are trials now and they will be hard, but they're light and momentary. Don't feel like it at the time, but they are light and momentary. Many in our church family are doing it tough at the moment. Some of you really are walking by faith. You're trusting Jesus day to day trusting him to see you through, Peter says that is precious. That is precious because you're finding your security in his king. We're not like the nations. We have a spirit-empowered king who doesn't fight his own battles. He fights the battles for God. He leads us to God. How about we pray to him? Heavenly Father, thank you for a king like no other, one who follows you, Thank you that by the Spirit's power,